Homesick by Margot Kim Read by Plush Chapter 7 The second meeting of the Hobbiton Local Poetry and Prose Book Club was to meet in Bilbo's parlor, which was a bit of a shock to both Bilbo and the women meeting there. It was a shock to Bilbo because Deese had neglected to tell him she had aims on the parlor this late morning, perhaps because she neglected to tell Bilbo that she'd founded a book club at all. What Deese did in her time outside of Back End was a mystery to everyone currently staying inside of it. And when you asked Deese point-blank what she'd been doing all day, she tended to just smile mysteriously at you. And it was a shock to the ladies, because dwarves were one thing, though unbeknownst to Bilbo at the time, but utterly unsurprisingly once he learned. The Shire was, at that moment, and for the last month or so, engaged in a passionate debate as to whether dwarves were outsiders that needed to be kicked out just as soon as they could find out which hobbit was doing the kicking, or if dwarves were just particularly ugly hobbits in which case kicking them out of the Shire would set a bad precedent for a great many hobbits. But elves were quite a different matter altogether. They were taller, for one. Hobbits will put up with a great deal of difference, by hobbit estimations at least, which by anyone else's standards the most you could say was that hobbits' rampant xenophobia is mostly benign. But height puts them off instantly. And Tariel was very, very tall. Oh, said Deese upon seeing her son's true love. It's you. Hello, Deese, replied Tariel, in the exact tone Bilbo had heard Belladonna level so often at her own mother-in-law, the vocal equivalent of a wary raising of the fists. Good heavens, said Mrs. Burroways, who was standing at Deese's elbow, a pair of reading glasses looped around her neck. You are tall. Who are these people? Bilbo said gesturing to a small horde standing in his entryway. "'My book club,' said Deese. "'I founded a book club. This village is very boring. What are you doing here, Tariel?' It wasn't quite an accusation. It was just this side of curious. Deese glanced at Bilbo, and there was a flutter of an emotion Bilbo couldn't quite name across her face. Hope or fear, one of the two. The emotions were nearly the same damn thing anyway. I am looking for Thorin, Tariel said. Deese snorted, whatever delicate emotion that had glanced its way across her face now firmly squelched. Welcome to the club. I founded that one as well. Then, with a nod to Bilbo, she added, co-founded at least. She eyed Tariel. So did the eight hobbits behind her, who were not quite sure what was going on, but were very glad to be overhearing it. You saw him? Yes, Tariel said. A while ago. I got him through the forests at Mirkwood. Dwalin thought that Thorin might have had help, Deese replied. He did, said Tariel. He had me. Is Dwalin here as well? Uh, at the forge, at the moment, said Deese, thinking quiet thoughts to himself under the cover of pounding metal. Oh, good. We were worried about him as well. We? Your sons, and Balin, and Erebor, and I. So, you still don't consider yourself part of Erebor, then? 
Do you consider your son a part of the woodland realm? Ooh, said Mrs. Grubb, elbowing her way into the front of the mass of hobbits. This seems much more interesting than the book we read. That's my book you're holding, said Bilbo, who had just noticed that, in fact, they were all carrying a copy of his first collection of poetry. Some of the copies appeared mysteriously unopened. Miss Grubb, in the time-honored Hobbiton tradition of uninvited guests, sat herself on the couch before anyone could tell her not to. So what's the story, then? she asked, looking back and forth between Dee Centaria with an open eagerness on her face. The other hobbits, perhaps feeling slightly less rude, shifted and glanced at each other, and then, momentary politeness passed, delicately scrambled into the parlor's seats. Tariel, now sandwiched between Mrs. Queen and Mrs. Flynn, stared at Bilbo in utter bafflement. Dees, now a couple months accustomed to the ways of hobbits, merely tapped on the shoulder of Mrs. Brownfoot, who was currently sitting in the armchair that somehow became Dees's, and gestured for her to scat. The only reason Bilbo was guaranteed a seat in his own parlor was that he was currently in his wheelchair, though Mrs. Brownfoot had a look on her face that suggested she wouldn't mind tipping him out of it if it meant she wouldn't be the one who had to sit on the ground. It is good to see you up and about, Mr. Baggins, Mrs. Grubb was saying. Our Deese has been telling us the most horrible stories about your health. Your Deese? Bilbo couldn't imagine anyone wanting to claim her. It seemed as unnatural as someone in Lake Town talking about our smog. Where did you see my brother? There, Deese, asked Tariel, shooting Bilbo a look as she did that said a hobbit in his delicate health ought to watch his tone. On the bank outside of the woodland realm, after Dwalin abandoned him, said Tauriel. Dees pressed her mouth together in a tight line, and Bilbo realized that he had not told Tauriel they were keeping the exact details of that incident from Dees. But all Dees said in reply was, Don't phrase it like that to Dwalin. And she gestured at Bilbo. You're mobile now, and Prim was very clear that you were to get exercise. Why don't you fetch us another pot of tea and some biscuits? And jam, said Mrs. Flynn. And sandwiches if you have them, added Mrs. Queen. And a little red wine, said the dowager root, and the group murmured in fervent agreement. And really quickly, just to catch up with everything, said Mrs. Grubb. Who is Thorin? What a good question, said Dees. Thorin is my brother. And like the protagonist of any proper tale, he has made a series of bad decisions. Bilbo, who had more experience than most at a large group of unexpected guests bursting into his house and demanding food, said simply, Dees, is this really how you want to hear her story? Dees looked at Bilbo and swept a hand towards Tariel, who was contriving to take up as little room on the couch as possible while the hobbits on either side of her contrived to take up as much as they could. When she arrived, you weren't in a hurry to fetch me. So there's no urgent news. She doesn't have my brother under her travel cloak. And I'm guessing she doesn't know where to find him. Bilbo and Tariel looked at each other. Her mouth pulled down in a delicate frown. Their silence was answer enough. Dees leaned back. <sighs> then it doesn't really matter how she tells me her story, does it? I'll take some red wine as well. The Tale of Tariel, as recounted to Dees and the ladies of the Hobbiton Local Poetry and Prose Book Club. 
Go find my uncle, said Keeley, son of Valley and Dees, and the battle-axe of the new king under the mountain. Make sure he is well. Antariel said, I'll find him, my love, and bring him home. Antariel left the mountain to follow in the king's footsteps. He fled with love on his back, and that would slow him down. At the lake, said the princess of Dale, we saw the king under the mountain sail past on a boat. Where heads he? Antario replied, To a different land, to be king no more. Pledge your friendship to the new king under the mountain, and point me in the direction of the old. The princess of Dale pointed Tariel up the lake, to the river winding by the forests of the greenwood, and there Tariel went. Thorin with his burden, and Dwalin as his strength, went by the water. Tariel travelled by the green, and so cut vicious lines through the map. Two days' lead had Thorin, but Tariel found him lost in the forest. The trail had curved since he last took it, and the road deceived his feet. His husband slept on his back and could offer no comfort. "'Come you alone to these shores?' asked Tariel. The once king raised his head. "'No,' he said. "'I came with Bilbo. I will press on with him. Do you mean to stop me?' "'I mean to take you home,' said Tariel, "'where those who love you may return you to your senses.' "'I am with my senses,' said Thorin. "'Your own king told me what I must do.' "'You are bewitched, indeed,' said Tariel, "'to seek and take the aid of Thranduil.' And Thorin said, "'Bilbo will die if he remains in Erebor. "'You know this.' And Tariel was silent. "'Take me through the forest,' said Thorin, "'or I will go on my own.' And Tariel replied, "'I will take you through the forest. "'I will take you as the elves travel.' by the roads of Valar and the secret passageways of the world. And Thorin said, Then let us make haste into the forest of darkness. And here let's interrupt her telling for a moment. Not for the half an hour that it was interrupted in reality, as Tariel tried to explain quantum travel to eight hobbits who'd never been outside their village and a dwarf who took too much pleasure in saying, I still don't understand, Tariel. Will you please explain it to us again? For you see... Elven lore had never been nearly as popular in the Shire as it ought to be, largely because the Shire distrusted and disliked both outsiders and tall folk. And Tariel, being unavoidably an elf, albeit a deeply unconventional one, found it difficult to translate what, for her, was the irrefutable facts of the world, just as a hobbit would have a great deal of difficulty explaining that the sky was generally blue. Surely they couldn't help but think. You should understand that by this point. And so for readers unfamiliar with the elven history of the world as they know it, here is the necessary background information. The world was made with singing the melody of the world, a perfect symphony of creation with just enough minor chords to keep everything interesting. Every part of the song was perfect, which was not the same as ideal or well-liked or particularly pleasing to the listeners. But when times of strife and sadness come, you can at least take comfort in the fact that those are still more or less built into the sound's melody at the beginning of everything. The thought wasn't always comforting, Tariel knew that. But it beat true randomness. When Tariel was young, when she sat beside Legolas as he learned from his father, the great king of the woodland realm told her this. Every part of the world was, without necessarily being good, perfect. The world was perfect because the song was perfect, because the singing was perfect. The Ainur, evidently, were a very fine chorus. That was what the histories told, anyway. But the thing about histories, Tariel learned early in life, was that they did gloss over a few of the creative difficulties. 
Like, for example, when you got to the oldest, densest parts of the world, the forests that had been waiting when the elves arrived, the rock underneath that sloped up to become mountains and down to form dark tunnels that led places no living creature could walk, the depths of the oceans underneath the cities and the villages of the sea where lived mines as vast as the sea itself, they all tended to have quite a lot of free-form improvisational jazz in their composition. The composer and the conductor of the greatest choir any gathering had ever seen cast his eye over the vast, dense foundational work, looked at how much writing he already had to do just to get photosynthesis to work, and said, more or less, just make sure whatever you do is in key, and let his chorus create some of the more obscure bits of the world into existence by humming whatever popped into their head. This is, of course, a horrendously inaccurate and profane paraphrase of the elaborate cinder and tale Tariel wove when one of the hobbits asked for clarification. But elves were an oral culture in one way, i.e. the perfect recall, word for word, of anything they ever heard, and a cultural commitment to recount those words as accurately as they could. And hobbits were a different oral culture altogether, i.e. I heard from Daisy, who heard from Myrtle, who has a brother in the constabulary, you know him, nice, but he's got that squint. And he heard tell from his captain that one of his other officers a few nights ago got called to a cottage on Berkshire Way, and I bet that means that Geoffrey is drinking again. But you didn't hear it from me. And in defense of the hobbits, that did usually mean that Geoffrey was drinking again. There's parts of the world that are a little fuzzier than others, Bilbo offered, and Tariel sighed. <sighs> I suppose that's one way to look at it. I don't remember this anywhere in the poetry. The slightly adulpated Mrs. Queen whispered to Mrs. Burroways as they flipped through their books. Probably in the intro, Mrs. Burroways said. I always skip the intro. Who is singing? asked Mrs. Grubb for the third time. They traveled by fairy roads through the forest to get through quicker, said Primilla from the doorway, with a basket of shopping for tonight's dinner in her arms. Throughout the room went a little, oh, of understanding, followed by a murmuring about why the elf didn't just say that in the first place. Bilbo started. When did you get here? Primilla pointed at Tariel. When did she get here? Apparently, said Deese, scooting over in her chair, it was a very eventful night. Are you Primilla? asked Tariel. Bilbo has already said so much about you. How do you do? Primilla bowed her head and looked Tariel up and down. You're very tall. I've been told. The dowager root thumped her cane on the ground. Finish the damn story! Primula sat on the arm of Deesa's chair, and the damn story continued. Tariel walked Thorin out of two weeks' worth of forest one day after they'd entered, which was very impressive and a rather complicated skill, not that anyone cares, and Tariel said, I will go with you as I can, but I cannot tarry. I am needed in Erebor at my love's side. "'As I am needed at mine,' said Thorin, and at that moment fluttered down a raven to land on Thorin's shoulder. It carried in its beak a ring. "'A ring?' asked Dees, sitting up in her chair for the first time. Bilbo pulled Thor's ring out of his waistcoat pocket and held it out to Dees. The raven dropped the ring into Thorin's hand. "'My offering was too paltry,' asked Thorin Oakenshield. The raven replied in the tongue of birds. Thorin nodded. Then I will offer something else, and unclasped a bead from his hair. One moment. Dees looked up from the ring in her palm, sounding as if she were, finally, against her will, interested in the story. What did the raven say? 
Tariel unclasped her hands and spread them wide. "'You mean to tell me,' said Dee slowly, for maximum scorn, "'that an elf, an elf, cannot even understand the language of beasts.' "'Beasts, yes. Birds, no.' Dees opened her mouth, and Primula said, "'And then what happens, Tariel?' "'This is the marriage bead of my mother,' Thorin said to the raven. "'What?' It was carved from Mithril, with the promise of love, and it was all of her that the dragonfire did not claim. He did what? He held it out in his hand, and the raven snatched it up. With a beat of its wings, it was gone. Dees made the kind of noise in her throat that meant that no one, not even the most curious of hobbits, was going to glance her way. Tariel walked with Thorn to the edges of Greenwood's holdings, an imperceptible place in the plains that became no man's land. And there Thorin pressed his ring into her hand. Go back, Toriel. Give this to my nephews. Tell them I am well. And sorry. This task is mine to finish. And Toriel kissed her friend upon his forehead and wished Thorin speed. And from there to Erebor she returned. Then, after some time, as the mountain settled, Keeley asked me to attend to his uncles, said Toriel. On the road I received word from Arabor that, though Bilbo arrived in the Shire, Thorin did not. I am sorry I did not accompany him all the way to his goal. Do not be, said Dees, her hand over her eyes. I'm sure Thorin would have come up with some new ways to barter away everything our family values, even if you had been there. Anyway, I hope you ladies enjoyed that brief interlude. The ladies likely had. They'd enjoy it more if someone would burst into tears, or at least some shouting. But Dees put her hand down, gently patted the hand Primula had rested on her shoulder, and said, I suppose we might as well discuss the works of Mr. Baggins, if Mr. Baggins would be so kind as to leave the room as we do it. Does anyone want refills on their wine? As the room raised their glasses in affirmation, Bilbo said to Dees, You're handling this better than I expected. Yes, well, said Dees, with a voice drier than the cheap wine. It turns out, once you've hit rock bottom of disappointment, there truly is nowhere to go but up. Let's back up for a brief moment. It may surprise Dees, but stories do start before she arrives. The night before, fresh from his talk with Dwalin, that had so utterly drained the both of them, Bilbo entered his room and found an elf waiting for him. She waited for him with Thorin's ring. "'Do you have the dwarf that goes with this?' Bilbo asked quietly. The household asleep, or nearly so, and the ring heavy in the palm of Bilbo's hand. It was too big to fit on any of Bilbo's fingers, and the band was so wide that if Bilbo could have securely worn it, he wouldn't have been able to bend the finger it adorned. So he held it, his thumb circling the band of strangely cool silver. It reminded him of his own ring that he missed so tremendously, and Bilbo couldn't remember right away if he meant his wedding ring or his magic one. Tariel had pulled Thorin's ring from her breast pocket, and still it was as cold as if no flesh had touched it. Elves did not heat the world as the other races did. Maybe the loss of body heat was too terribly inefficient for immortals. No, Tariel said, some measure of gentleness in her voice. The answer didn't surprise Bilbo. If Thorin was here, he'd be here. If Tariel knew where Thorin was, 
she would have told Bilbo straight away. If she had any news at all, she wouldn't be still perched in the windowsill, looking at Bilbo so expectantly. Still, Bilbo was much like Dees, perfectly capable of being disappointed without being surprised. At this point in his tale, the real trick would have been managing the opposite. If Thorin had been so damn concerned about Bilbo's health, he thought bitterly, then he should have considered the wear on Bilbo's heart to get every visitor in Middle-earth, except him. Well, then, said Bilbo, slipping Thorin's ring onto his thumb and curling his hand into a fist around it so it wouldn't slip off. You'd better come in and shut the window behind you. I've a nurse that will scold you to death if I catch a chill. So Tariel told Bilbo what she knew, and Bilbo told Tariel what he knew, and they both spent a good long while trying to figure out what they still didn't know, until Bilbo yawned and Tariel said, Rest. The mystery will still be waiting for you in the morning. I wish it wouldn't, Bilbo had said. I very much wish Thorn would just turn up and spoil the ending. Did he truly not leave you anything? Tariel had asked. You mean did he jot off a note? Went off to do something stupid, sorry about that, hope you enjoy Lobelia's pumpkin patch? Bilbo had shook his head. No, he did not. That is worrying. It was such a staggeringly obvious statement that Bilbo felt like saying something scathing for a moment there. But he'd sighed instead. <sighs> yes. Yes, it is. At the start of her tale, Tariel had asked Bilbo if he wanted her to light a candle, and Bilbo said no, he could see perfectly well by the moonlight. And Tariel said, It is beautiful tonight, isn't it? Yes, Bilbo replied. Did you miss it? Tariel asked. Tremendously. Because he knew what she was asking and what she meant. There were few windows in Erebor. It might be more accurate to say there were none. Just holes in the mountain the dwarves had tolerated for ventilation, for architecture, for some pragmatic reason or another. But not the most pragmatic reason of all, which was simply that it did a body good to see the sky. The hobbit body, at least. And the elf one as well. The dwarf body, Bilbo found out, sealed itself off from the open sky and immediately felt safer than it ever had in the wide world. You could leave Erebor if you needed to, of course. And when Bilbo had been healthy, he'd stepped outside Erebor frequently, out of the parapets or down at the rocky plains at the foot of the mountain, or over to Dale on a visit. But Bilbo's life, his work and love, they lived inside the mountain. The sky was a detour that Bilbo needed to remember to take and he didn't get around to it nearly as often as he should have. Bilbo got outside the most when Tariel came to visit. She couldn't live in Erebor, of course not, which meant that Keeley didn't live in Erebor either. But Keeley couldn't live in Mirkwood, obviously no way. And so they took turns suffering in each other's home between patrol missions, a voluntary exile somewhere between the two homelands. Tariel was the Woodland Realm's first consistent envoy in centuries. Keeley had mapped more of the outside world than any dwarf in Erebor ever had. And when each job outside the forest and mountain were over, they stayed in the same place together, one returning home and one heading into enemy lands, though not, at least, the land of their enemy. Mirkwood and Erebor had arguably never been better diplomatic relations, a setup partially the result of Tariel and Keeley's aggressive peacemaking efforts, and partially the mellowing of the kings of each realm following the Battle of the Five Armies. Bilbo had seen how Thorin and Thanduil had been humbled by their actions that day. 
they might still vault over the negotiating table to fist-fight each other. Bard, in this scenario, presumably giving up and letting them go at it, perhaps just doing the arithmetic of how much easier life would be without them. But they wouldn't bring their armies into it. They had reduced their hate to a personal level, which everyone agreed was the most you could reasonably hope for. The problem isn't the elves, Keeley had complained to Bilbo one time after returning from a month-long stay in Mirkwood. The elves are fine. A bit flouncy, a bit flowy, but what are you going to do? Besides, Keeley winked at Tariel, I like a little flounce and flow. Tariel had given Keeley a smile in response that made Bilbo feel very much that facial expressions like that ought to be done in the privacy of the bedroom. Then what don't you like about Mirkwood? Bilbo had asked before Keeley could smirk in response. Keeley's smirks were public indecency. Keeley scowled instead. All of Mirkwood, basically. He shook his head at Tariel. Too many spiders. Too many trees. And it's so dark in there. A dwarf starts to feel hemmed in. Yes, unlike the total freedom that is the narrow tunnel that runs underneath millions of pounds of rock, Tariel had replied. She slowly straightened and pointedly hit her forehead against the ceiling of the little reception room they'd been talking in. At least you can reach everything, Keeley said. He took Tariel's hand and kissed it as he tugged her back down to sitting beside him. I can't get a glass of water in your home without needing to mount an expedition up the counters. If I want to get a jug from one of your shelves, I need to establish a base camp halfway up. <sighs> Poor little man, Tariel replied, with that smile again. I'll fetch whatever you like. Oh, will you? Keeley replied, and smirked, and it was about then Bilbo pointedly excused himself. The moonlight was the thing. The moonlight that came so naturally to the Shire. It didn't need to be sought. Half the times, you had to shut the blinds just to get away from it. Tariel stood at Bilbo's window, and she understood what Bilbo meant. Even in Bilbo's underground home, here was a window. Here was the sky. They weren't in Erebor anymore. The truth was, Thorin in hand or not, though obviously Bilbo had his preference. Bilbo was glad that Tariel was here. She loved someone the way that Bilbo loved Thorin. Not as family. Not as old friends. She loved Keeley as something utterly unknown to her. An interruption in the stasis of her life. A realization that the world as she knew it was a fraction of the world that was. She loved Keeley as a foreigner speaking a different tongue. In a different land. If Arabor was ever home to Tariel, it was because Keeley lived there and thought of it as home. And Bilbo understood that. Bilbo very much understood that. The Tale of Tariel, as recounted to Bilbo Baggins in the night. Give my assurance to the new king, Thranduil told Tariel, in the privacy of their reception room, right off the throne room, where the throne was suddenly a matter of fervent and impassioned debate. That this course of action was not what I intended. Your Majesty, said Tariel, still trying to digest the information she'd just heard. What? Thranduil did not roll his eyes, because elves did not do that. Particularly not sovereign lords of the elves, who if they desired to stoop to convey the sentiment of rolling eyes, would hire someone to do it for them. And while Thranduil was perfectly capable of conveying that level of scorn without ever moving his face, this particular morning he didn't even give off the impression that he had heard Tariel. He seemed too utterly self-absorbed in this moment. More so than usual, 
drawled the Legolas that lived in Tariel's head, to pay her any thought at all. I will never understand the follies of dwarves, Thranduil said. They will sweep away reason without a moment's hesitation, because it occurs to them that they might commit a gesture. They are romance without thought. Dramatics, emotions, but nothing underneath. They'd rather tear their beards and rend their clothes than give a situation a moment's thought. This was, in Tariel's humble opinion, astonishingly rich coming from her king, whom she loved and honored and respected, and who was currently draping his cloak over himself as he soliloquized. Tariel had not been born yet when Thranduil's wife had died, but she'd heard the stories whispered of his grief. King Thorin kidnapped Bilbo, Tariel said, and abdicated? Kidnap, Thranduil looked thoughtful. I suppose he did. He hardly could ask the hobbit's permission. Your Majesty, Tariel stared at him, still trying to process that last bit. Why? Do you know what a peaceweaver is, Tariel? Thranduil said. It's a term I heard from the world of men, their hearts not being crafted near as tender as our own. A peaceweaver is a woman married to her father's enemy to turn two feuding families into one. Thranduil slipped into lecture easily around her. It was the right of kings to hold court, and more so, Tariel had sat by his son's side through their childhood. They'd learned together, and Thranduil had been their teacher. And always, so easily, she slipped into feeling as a child around him. A slippage he helped, seeing as he rarely ceased treating her or Legolas like one. He looked her squarely in the eye as he fastened his cloak around his neck, and Tariel realized that, no, this was one of those moments where it behooved him to think of her as full-grown. You have become our peaceweaver, Tariel. Your intentions with this union were never so cynical. Mine are. We need you to act today and for the next days as the best of our realm. The dwarves of Erebor are in chaos, and the dwarves of foreign mountains may see an opportunity for themselves in upheaval. What do you wish of me? Tariel asked. That you convey to Erebor no grand conspiracy on the part of the Greenwood to displace the king. That we are now and will remain their allies. This, Thranduil said gravely. Then he sniffed. It's hardly our fault Thorn Oakenshield is melodramatic in love. We've no qualm with Mirkwood, Keeley told Tariel in his chambers as a dozen dwarves helped dress him. Even if Thranduil has directly chucked Thorn out the door... We haven't got time at the moment to have a qualm with anyone. We'll start qualming when the coronation is done. Thorin has not been gone twelve hours. Is it not too soon to transfer power? Tariel said, over the heads of the dwarves making Kili the hastiest armor the line of Durin had ever seen. Kili was to stand beside his brother as the crown lowered onto Fili's head, and until Fili had children, Kili was the new heir apparent. He needed to look regal. Twelve hours is a long time without a king, Keeley said grimly. He abdicated Tariel. Whether on the advice of Mirkwood or not, he made his choice. I could track him down, Tariel snapped her fingers. Bring him home like that. Like Dwalin went to bring him home, Keeley drawled. It wouldn't change anything, except that now we'd have the old king hanging around while we crowned Feely. Thorn left the mountain left the crown behind, and stated that he was no longer king in his letter. 
that's all it takes. Just like that, Tariel said. Just like that. Keeley tried to tug his beard, his new stress tick now that he'd managed to grow facial hair longer than an inch. But the glover working on his hand held tight and glared. But how do you know? Tariel hesitated at the mass of dwarves in the room, dwarves that were pointedly ignoring their conversation while also certainly listening. He left in the night with nothing but his husband and his bodyguard, leaving nothing but a letter behind, she said in Cinderin. Will those who oppose your brother's ascension not raise the question of foul play? Dwarves are not elves, Keeley replied, or rather, dwarves, elves, no be, to directly transcribe his ongoing attempt to learn Sindarin. His vocabulary was lacking, his syntax downright nonsensical, but Tariel had to admit his accent still made her swoon. What does that mean? she asked. We don't kinslay. It's not an ongoing habit of my kind either, Tariel said, a little cross. And it will not matter what actually happened. It will only matter what your enemies will say happened. Or perhaps what had happened, thought Tariel. You didn't become captain of the guard without some cynicism about the world. Kings were vulnerable at the best of times, and Thorne had been distracted as of late. Keeley was silent a moment in thought. Find my uncle. Confirm his story. If you can, bring him back. If not... His eyes darted around the crowded room, the milling crowds of dwarves preparing for a hasty coronation. There'd be another one later, a grander one than this quick affair. But the transition needed to happen, and it needed to happen now. They were fortunate that Feely had been acting king this last week. It made something about this entire fiasco look purposeful. Leave us, he announced to the room. And with the weight of his role, the room left. Alone together, his suit of armor half-made and hanging about him, Keeley reached for Tariel's hands. Feely wanted to send out the entire army to look for Uncle. I told him not to. You're right. It will be easier if he is not here, Tariel said quietly. Keeley chewed the inside of his cheek. It's not just that. We still don't know what we're going to tell the public. If we send out an army, it looks like... Well, like he did exactly what he did. Like he left, and we don't know why. And we didn't know he was going to do it. Keeley closed his eyes, his head lolling back. Ugh, Mayhal. I don't know what we're going to say. The truth may be your best bet. It doesn't sound great, though, does it? Keeley looked up at her with bright eyes. That Thorin loved Bilbo more than Erebor. No, Tariel said firmly. No more than you love Erebor more than me. His heart belongs to his husband and his people. His husband needs him. His people do not. As Keeley wavered, Tariel pressed her forehead against Keeley's. He would not leave Erebor if he did not trust his nephews to care for it. That is not Thorin. I know, said Keeley quietly. But I wish... He faltered. Toriel wrapped her hand around the back of his neck, and he sighed against her. Just find my uncle. Tell him to do what he needs to do. Toriel did not go to the coronation. Keeley invited her, and Toriel demurred, and he didn't ask again. It was a dwarf ceremony. They both knew that. Bilbo had gone to Thorin's coronation, but this ceremony would have to be different, not the least of which because Bilbo's presence at the last one. 
Tariel heard reports that Balin crowned Feely. Keeley had knelt beside his brother. At the reception, Tariel stayed by Thranduil's side as he paid homage to the new king under the mountain. And when Thranduil left her to join King Bard's delegation, Tariel stalked through a crowd that came up only to her chest until she could see Keeley again, seated next to his brother high on the dais. She pressed her fingers to her lips. He did the same. Then, with some relief, Tariel slipped out into the night. It took her no short time to catch up to Thorin. He'd run off into the greenwood, Mirkwood she could reluctantly concede on days when the plants were as hostile as they were now, and gotten himself lost in a moment. Dwalin was nowhere to be found, which didn't surprise her. The forest had a way of separating travelers. Thorin might have lost Bilbo, too, if he hadn't been lashed to his back. Good, Thorin said as way of greeting, when she landed on the forest floor in front of him. I need a point in the right direction. Erebor is to your east, Tariel said. Thorin looked away. Do not scold me like a child. I know what I do. That doesn't make the action wise. It is the only action I can take. Thorin said this with such conviction that the words might have been made from stone. From the advice of my king. Desperate times. She looked around. Where is Dwalin? Have you lost him in the forest? Thorin flinched as if she had stabbed him. Dwalin... Dwalin does what he thinks is right. He went back to the mountain from the banks of the river. He was spared Mirkwood again. Tariel was staggered. She thought Dwalin Thorin's fifth limb. From the look on Thorin's face, the severing was painful. You're alone. Thorin raised his head. No. I came with Bilbo. I will press on with him. I will take him home and watch him heal and build a home with him, in the land where he came from. Do you mean to stop me? No, said Toriel after a moment. I know better than to tell a son of Durin what he should presume to do. Any son of Durin. Thorin looked surprised a moment, the fight still in his face. Then he nodded. Thank you. Are... are my nephews... One is king sooner than expected, and so the other stays by his side, Tariel said when Thorin could not finish. But is that not the way of mortal princes? They train all their lives because kings die suddenly, and you are not dead. He is ready for this, and is spared from the usual grief. Is that what you counseled Keeley? Thorin asked. That is what Keeley counseled Feely, as well as his counsel my king, and the king of Dale. Thorin nodded, a ragged jerk of the head where he did not try to meet her eyes. And they... accepted him as king under the mountain. They all have worked with your nephews and have found them of the highest quality. Tariel clasped her hands behind her back and looked away into the perpetual dusk of the forest. The greenwood was so beautiful, even at its ugliest. Who could ever find happiness anywhere else on earth? The kings understood what you did better than anyone else, I think. And they had, Thranduil and Bard officially offering the Durans a graciousness that Tariel knew had left Feely stunned. They are both widowers as well. I am not a widower. The words were a whip-crack, and for a moment, the background chatter of the forest startled into silence. Then the buzzing of insects began again, and the distant calls of the birds, 
and Thorin suddenly looked too tired to press on. I never will be. No, Tariel said quietly. Not if we can help it. Before I report back to your nephews, I can take you through the forest faster than you'll ever find on your own. This was almost certainly true, if only because Thorin had such an unremittingly terrible sense of direction that he couldn't manage to follow a marked path. Thorin nodded again. Then let us lose no time. You haven't mentioned me, Bilbo said, his voice quiet. Bilbo and Tariel huddled in his room, like two children at a sleepover. The household was asleep. Dwalin snoring across the hall. Premila and Drogo settled in as well. Even Deese had finally come in, about an hour ago, and Bilbo and Tariel had listened in silence to the tired footsteps that came down the hall and shut a bedroom door behind them. Egotist, Toriel said lightly. Unashamedly, but I am presumably there the entire time you were speaking to him. Yes, strapped to his back. Though as we traveled, I carried you sometimes as well. And how did I look? Tariel's eyes studied him as only elf eyes could. From a height, for one. And with a searchlight that came from within them. They carried starlight and sunshine in their body. The echoes of the great song reverberating in their chests. Thorne could tell a good gem cut from a bad with a glance, not even a magnified one, and he could see the fire's temperature by minute hue. And he could see something in Bilbo that Bilbo had never been able to see in himself. Different eyes saw different things. That's what he'd learned going abroad from the land of eyes he'd known all his life. Taria looked at him and said, You looked unwell. And Bilbo knew that was why Tariel had so quickly abandoned the hope of bringing Thorn back to Erebor. There is no point describing a journey by fairy roads. For one, you couldn't. Not without such extensive use of metaphor that you eventually ended up miles from the point where you started with no idea how you'd gotten so off course. A bit like traveling via fairy roads. And for another, whatever words you'd string together to try to explain the feeling to someone else, like getting sucked up by a straw, like eating yourself whole, starting with the feet, but it doesn't hurt. Like those dreams you have when you know you ought to get up, but your body wants to keep sleeping. So you dream how you've gotten up and dressed and left the house, and it feels so real that when you wake up, you're distressed to learn you have to do it all again. Except the fairy roads are like that feeling, but sort of backwards and inside out. You'd eventually have to give up and say, it's something you must do for yourself. Tariel thought they were great fun. Thorin, throwing up at the first sight of sunshine onto the trunk of a tree, thought them less so. She gave him a moment and took care of Bilbo. He was ashen. He'd always had a faint complexion, especially next to the ruddy dwarves, though enough time in the sun tinted him gold. He had no gold now, just gray, like a cleaning rag too thoroughly used to ever get its color back. He was skinnier, and the loss of weight made him look older, skin hanging and wrinkled the way elf skin didn't. Tariel touched the back of her finger to his cheek. The skin was smooth and dry as leather, worn all the way through. He felt threadbare. He looks better, Thorin said, ever since I got him out of the mountain. And Thorin was right. I can go with you, Tariel said. We can make more haste with two. Thorin shook his head. You are needed back at Erebor. My nephew needs you, and Feely needs Keeley. I know... He looked away. I know I have wronged them terribly, that I have left a wretched mess, and left it to them to clean up. 
You live such short lives, said Tariel. Get what happiness you can find. And then the raven came, and gave back Thorin his ring, and Thorin gave the raven his mother's marriage bead. Tariel looked on without understanding any of it, save that there were few deals in this world that may be done without payment. What is he trying to pay for? Bilbo asked. If I knew, said Tariel, I would tell you. Did you ask him? I did. And he said? That it was nothing more than a desperate, wild hope. It was another day's walk to the edges of the Woodland Realm's protectorate. Tariel felt the break as clearly as if she'd left the ground and tried to walk into the sea. They made camp there under the stars, in this last stretch of peaceful land before the wilderness began. You'll need help from here on more than ever, Tariel said. Go to my nephews, Thorin replied. I have help. Tariel raised an eyebrow. Your mysterious friend on the other side of the raven? Thorin smiled and reached over to hold Bilbo's hand. My best good luck charm. His smile turned wry, though he works better when he's awake. In the dawn, Tariel kissed Bilbo's forehead and gave what strength she could to him. It was a strange seed planted in thorny soil, but he looked a little brighter when she drew back. She helped Thorin fasten Bilbo to his back, and when they were done, Thorin clasped Tariel's hand. When she drew back, the ring the raven had given her was in her palm. Tell them. I am sorry, Thorin said. I'll tell them that, Tariel replied, and also that you are doing what you must do. Thorin looked more grateful for the words than he'd been for the crown when they'd lowered it onto his head. Tariel knew this, for she had been at his coronation too. Keely had held her hand as they watched Thorin rise as king, and they had watched Bilbo, standing a little bit to Thorin's left, so proud on Thorn's behalf that he'd glowed like a sun in the dark of the mountain. Tariel went back to the mountain. She bowed into the darkness and before the new king. She waited to kiss the new heir until they were in the privacy of his new chambers. What they thought and said was theirs to keep. Keeley was her love. Feely was her friend. She kept their confidences and buried their words inside her. In the end, they said that they were happy for their uncle and their uncle by marriage. Keeley, at least, knew a thing or two about doing stupid things for love. And she slept there, under the mountain, where she couldn't see or hear or breathe or think, when the rock smothered the sky and those who ought to be sleeping underneath it, and always the pounding of the forges in the deep, always the deafening noise echoing forever in the rocks in the dark. If Thranduil was right, if the mountain was killing Bilbo, she was surprised only that he had lasted so long. Five years under the mountain— six total away from home. It was a good while longer than he could have got. It was not so short in the lifetime of a hobbit. You don't need to comfort me, said Bilbo quietly. I'm already grateful for what I got. Now I'm ready to settle in the Shire again. Are you ready because you have no choice, said Tariel. If I have no choice, said Bilbo, I may as well get ready. In the throes of the unexpected book club, after Tariel told that version of her tale to Dees, Bilbo went back to the kitchen for refills. Two hobbits, who looked at an invalid in a wheelchair and decided he shouldn't be the one solely responsible for catering, came with to help him.
They were lingering by the doorway, though, trying to catch all the vital background information Deese was giving so that the hobbits could understand anything about what it is they'd just heard. "'My brother went off to reclaim our homeland,' Deese began. "'Well, how'd he lose it in the first place?' someone interrupted. "'Imagine that, losing a whole homeland.' Don't you judge, Daisy. You'd lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. There was a dragon, Dee said loudly, and it killed rather a lot of us. There was a general murmuring in the parlor, a bit of sympathy mixed with a muffled debate over whether that was a sufficient reason to lose a perfectly good homeland. There was only one voice in the parlor that Bilbo did not hear. Tariel, as far as Bilbo could reckon, had said nothing since finishing her tale, which Dee probably had no objections to. If Bilbo could make a few suppositions about Deese as mother-in-law that were probably unfair and mean and accurate, and the hobbits, following Deese's lead and their own natural distrust of anyone over five feet tall, were unlikely to initiate conversation with her, which meant that Tariel was perched politely on Bilbo's couch, the first elf held hostage in the Shire. "'You'd never get a dragon in the Shire,' Mrs. Birch said to Mrs. Brownfoot as they stacked more biscuits on a tray." "'Yes, they are attracted to all the gold we don't have, aren't they?' Bilbo replied, and popped the cork on a bottle of a decent red. Mostly decent, anyway. You could drink it, anyway. Unsurprisingly, the two women left Bilbo to finish up the work in the kitchen by himself just as quick as they could. Bilbo couldn't terribly blame them. Deese was just getting into the Battle of the Five Armies, which was always everyone's favorite part during the ballots. Though Bilbo had never heard Feely and Keeley's achievements in battle interspersed with quite so many descriptions of how much of a pain they had been while they were teething. Bilbo hardly needed their help. After a few moments bumping around in the kitchen, Bilbo had discovered that the wheelchair Dwalin had built him was so disgustingly easy to use that Bilbo was going to have considerable difficulty getting anyone to do something for him. Bilbo raised himself slightly in his seat using the pump Dwalin had fashioned, grabbed a loaf of bread off the counter, and silently lamented his inevitable future of having to do things for himself once more. There were some advantages to infirmity, at least if you're tremendously lazy in that genteel hobbit way. Bilbo glanced at the wine bottle on the table, the last dregs still there, before he sighed and started on a pot of coffee instead. He'd been up half the night talking to Tariel. And that was after he'd been up the first half of the night talking with Dwalin. It had been a long time since Bilbo could say that he was tired because he hadn't gotten enough sleep. This, he supposed, was improvement. Chores and exhaustion. Bilbo jumped as Tariel appeared from nowhere to sit beside him by the fire. Thankfully, most of his drink had stayed in his cup. Coffee makes me jittery as well, Tariel said as Bilbo wiped his waistcoat with a rag. I have difficulty imagining that. Bilbo resigned himself to a stain. Why, like a fool, had he put on his white linen today? And took stock of what was left of his coffee. On the whole, which story was more of a lie? The one you told me, or the one you told just now? This requires more editing, Tariel said simply. Though I do like her. She's been a good friend to me, when I was settling amongst the dwarves. That is the most surprising fact you've recounted to me. He took another sip, felt the warmth flow through him, felt a little more vitality snap behind his eyes. And then Keeley asked you'd come to the Shire, Bilbo asked. More or less, Tariel said. I wanted to come, and he agreed it was a good idea. Did you think Deese would be more amenable if she knew your presence was the result of your son's idea rather than your own? Bilbo asked. Tariel smiled a little, just the corner of her mouth, 
and shrugged lightly. Bilbo, I think a little fresh air would suit me now. Would you like to join me? He finished his coffee in two swallows. I suppose I could give you the tour, said Bilbo, sounding more reluctant than he felt. In truth, he was twitching to get outside. He practically wanted to romp. Him. Romping. He hadn't romped in decades. He was fairly sure it was illegal after age 14. Did you know that yesterday was the first time I've been outside since I woke? So long indoors, Tariel said, aghast, this being that lived off starlight as much as food. And then she got that look in her eyes that made her look very much like Keeley's true love. Have you looked out the window yet today? Why are you asking in that tone? She grinned at him. Grab your hat, Bilbo, and bundle up. You are not in Erebor, and the sky is giving the surface dwellers a gift. The snow looked like diamonds as it fell, the first snowfall of the season. Bilbo barely had time to think about how happy that comparison would have made Thorin before Tariel pushed, and they went flying down the road, elf and hobbit in chair, and if there was unsightly whooping on the part of one or more of them, you could hardly blame them. They were above ground, under nothing but open sky, and the Shire was beautiful in winter. So Drogo scrounged up another bedroom, and Tariel stayed. Dwalin greeted her with a bear hug when he came back from the forge, and Tariel told her tale for a third time over dinner. Afterwards, Primula helped Bilbo with her exercises, while Dees read by the fire, and the snow kept falling. Bilbo cheerfully excused himself from shoveling. Dwalin solved that problem by barreling straight through it. Tariel picked up her cinder and lessons with Bilbo, and his tongue relearned the sounds it had forgotten from lack of practice. Dees said she might break the ultimate taboo and simply teach him Kustal, simply so she wouldn't have to listen to any more elf talk as she knitted with Primula in the evenings. They talked in low voices and laughed together at jokes no one else in the room quite heard. And Drogo would come over and join them, and Dees always sat so that Primula and Drogo had to squish together on the couch. One evening, Primula leaned her head on Drogo's shoulder. He had eyes like stars for the rest of the evening. And Dwalin, meanwhile, would come in from the yard or the pantry or the storage room, wherever he had found something in need of repair, and he'd announce to the room what he had fixed. Tariel sat off to the side, by herself. She found a harp in the marketplace and played it to the pleasure of the hobbits and supposed consternation of the dwarves, who were forever cajoling her to pick a decent dwarf ballad. But mostly she just watched. She was like Bilbo in that regard. And so a week passed, and then two, and then another, and it was a month since Dwalin had arrived, and two months since Bilbo had woken, and the snow kept falling. Bilbo climbed up the hill behind his home nearly every day, as winter settled in with picturesque snowfalls and miserable chills. Dwalin could clear a path just by stomping through the snow, and he did just that for anyone who'd asked, a great deed that made him the bitter enemy of the lads who made their pocket money shoveling. With Dwalin at the lead and someone, usually Drogo, often Prim, occasionally Dees, and rarely Tariel, too tall by half to comfortably grip the handles, pushing the wheelchair, Bilbo made it to the summit of the little hill easily enough. And then Bilbo started halting his assistant a little way down from the top. He managed a few feet uphill that first day before he collapsed. He managed the same distance the next day, and the next, and when he got comfortable with that small trek, he started with a little lower down the hill. Everyone got very good at catching him before he could tumble backwards head over heels down the slope. Once had been enough. Then his excursion outside completed, 
he would loudly announce he was done with exercise for the day, thank you, and lock himself in his library until dinner. And that is how waiting passed into routine. He fits in well, Tariel said as she settled down by Bilbo in the library. Bilbo had stopped jumping when she appeared. Tariel couldn't have walked loudly if she tried, and she rarely remembered to say hello before she started talking to you, and so you simply had to get used to turning around sometimes and seeing her there, halfway into a conversation with you that you had not actually yet participated in. Dwalin, I take it, Bilbo said, closing the book he'd been half-heartedly reading. Miss Grubb had picked this week's book for the club, a rather soppy love story about two hobbits who fell in love over the objections of their feuding families. He'd given the first chapter the benefit of the doubt and was now reading almost entirely out of hope that at least one half of the couple would die before the end. Tariel drew back the curtain on the window. Bilbo could see in the distance, down the path, Dwalin's bald head gleaming in the winter sun. He appeared to be giving three separate children a piggyback ride. He's raising a little army, Tariel said. Inform Thranduil that the dwarves have broken their peace treaty, Bilbo said. Dwalin was teaching the hobbitlings to wrestle. He said it was an outrage, the way they grew up never knowing the right way to make a fist. And when Bilbo suggested that was because hobbits, on the whole, did not routinely punch each other in the face, Dwalin stared at Bilbo as if he'd said that hobbits didn't believe in wearing clothes. "'You've got to know how to keep yourself safe,' Dwalin said so firmly it was clear that he was not actually asking anyone's permission to teach them. And ever since then, Bilbo could glance out his window and see half a dozen youngsters following Dwalin through the snow. Bilbo was never sure how the children's parents felt. On the one hand, a strange dwarf was encouraging their youngsters towards violence. But on the other hand, the average hobbit couple had about a dozen children, and if you could get a few out of the house for a while, it didn't much matter what they were doing. And at least Wallen had given up on teaching them all axe work, when it was clear that his battle axe was taller than all of them. I heard rumor his best pupils are planning to share with him a demonstration of their skills gained in long-range ballistics, Tariel said. They're going to pelt him with snowballs. That's what our reconnaissance reports. Tariel, too, had her own following of hobbit children. They were a less literal following than Dwalin's, it being apparently beyond even the aptitude of the young and eager to keep up with an elf in, which is to say more accurately, on, the snow. Bilbo had more than once looked out the window to see Tariel striding across the top of the powder, while in her wake a few knit caps and flowing scarves bobbed as best they could through the powder behind her. Bilbo put aside his book and asked Tariel, Did you hear Dees and Dwalin are building me a sleigh? I did. Congratulations, Bilbo. I believe it is the first cooperative effort they've shared since I've been here. Then it's the first they've done, Bilbo said, since Dees was nearly at Dwalin's throat for a while there. She is a woman of passions. I admire that. You only say that because you are not the subject of her passions. Tariel raised an eyebrow. Really, she said dryly. You don't think the elf her son loves has experienced any of King Deese's passions? Right, Bilbo said. Good point. I'm amazed she likes you so much, to be honest. Tariel shrugged, her hair sliding off her shoulder like spider silk. It's because she knows she'll never need to be my mother-in-law, she said bluntly. She's welcomed me into her family so long as we have no actual kinship bond. Bilbo frowned. What do you mean? You're married, same as me. Not at all. Tariel sat on the edge of Bilbo's desk. We are married as elves are married because we love each other to the exclusion of others.
There's nothing that binds us as the dwarves have bound you to Thorin. No 87-page contract? Bilbo asked. Tariel smiled wryly. Do the peace and trade treaties between the Greenwood and the Mountain suffice? She looked back out the window again. She looked beautiful in the cold sunlight, though it was hard to imagine a natural light that would not cast Tariel as a beauty. That's elves for you. She never looked so beautiful in Erebor. The light of candles and forges and the light crafted by mortal hands never fell so elegantly upon her face. She'd always looked a little ashen under the mountain. Bilbo wondered if she had looked at him and thought the same. "'Why are you here, Tariel?' Bilbo asked. "'Because Premila told me to fetch you for tea.' "'No, no, that's not what I mean,' Bilbo said. "'Wait, what's for tea?' "'Miss Brownfoot made us a stew, apparently.' "'Well, as long as Premila didn't cook it, it should be edible enough.' Bilbo sat back in his chair, his office chair. His wheelchair was in the corner of the library. He had enough strength to shuffle from one seat to the other these days, and his body appreciated the change of scenery, so to speak. "'I mean, why are you still at Bag End?' "'Don't get me wrong, Tariel,' Bilbo added hurriedly. "'I like having you here.' Compared to the dwarves, you're so quiet it's like you're hardly there. Your presence gives Dee something to grumble about that's not Thorin. Who knows how Dwalin would entertain himself in the evenings if he didn't have you to spar with, and my winter plants have never been better than when you've looked after them. Oh, Master Hobbit, Tariel teased. It's so nice to be appreciated for my personality. Bilbo waved his hand. And I suppose you're nice enough. But winter travel is clearly no problem for you. I'm fairly sure you could ice skate home on a slush during a blizzard and get there two days before you left. Is the most gracious homeowner in the Shire telling a guest to leave? asked Tariel. No, I'm practically begging you to stay. My poinciettas will die without you. I just want to know why you are here. I know you and Keeley, he said, and Tariel's eyes lowered for a moment. Why are you away from him? Bilbo had studied. More extensively than any hobbit currently living, he felt confident saying, the differences among the races of the earth, and he had formed a few opinions on comparative physiology that he had seen noted nowhere else. Dwarves had faces built for anger, for glowering, for banked coals and bursting flames. Next to dragons, they were the race most likely to breathe fire. Hobbits had faces built for youth, noticeable only when you had seen enough men, who had faces built for change. Hobbits aged without ever looking old, wrinkled and hunched and rasped, and never lost the look in their eyes of the children they had been. Men looked different every time you saw them, the children quickest of all. Each time Bilbo had visited Dale, Bart's children had been rendered unrecognizable from the last time he had been there. And elves. Elves were sculpted for sadness. Their resting face was one of quiet grief. Imagine you are a prince. Tariel said quietly. You are a prince one life away from the throne. No one has prepared you for being that close. No one was ready for the king who is now king to be king. The old king, the mythic king, the reclaimer touched by greatness and madness and glory and the right to rule. He has disappeared in the middle of the night. For love. For the love of an outsider. Imagine you are that prince and you love an outsider as well. And the eyes of the kingdom are upon you as you try to convince them that you can lead. 
Oh, said Bilbo. Keeley did not ask me to leave, said Toriel. We discussed it, however, and thought it might be best if I was away from Erebor. She had left Erebor before. Keeley had always gone with her. Bilbo could see how Erebor would want to see that Toriel could leave and Keeley could stay. It was easy to decide to come here. You are the only person I know who loves as I love. I'm sorry, said Bilbo. Toriel glanced at him as if surprised to hear the words. Are you saying that because you offer your condolences, she asked, or because you think you're somehow at fault? I'm saying it because I know how hard it is to be away from the person you love, said Bilbo. I have frankly done nothing wrong. Toriel laughed, and if you have never been lucky enough to hear an elf laugh, let Bilbo assure you, it is sweet to hear. It makes flowers bloom in the midst of winter. Elves are made for grief, it seems, and so they have become adept at finding joy in the midst of it. The separation is not so bad as I feared, Tariel said. Forgive my bluntness, but it is a better situation than yours. We write to each other every day. It was true. Deesa's ravens were being run ragged by love. I do worry. I worry all the time that something will happen while I am gone. Tariel shook her head, looking out the window again. But I suppose being apart from him, knowing his soul is somewhere but not with me, I suppose this is good practice, for what we know must come. The library rang with silence. Once, two or three years after the reclamation of Erebor, the two of them had snuck off from some banquet or another to complain about Erebor where Erebor couldn't hear. Bilbo's exact memories of that night were fuzzy. Dwarf banquets were 80% ale. And it is hard, he'd said, trying very hard to remain upright. You know, loving someone who isn't, like, you know, you. Backaches from bending over, Tariel had replied, tried to demonstrate bending and then nearly fallen over. For an elf of Thranduil's court, she didn't hold her liquor very well. Boots trotting on your toes. Beards. Bilbo had nodded so emphatically he'd gotten a little sick. Beards. And as far as Bilbo could remember, the next ten minutes had been just them morosely saying beards to each other, which was a pleasant enough way to round out an evening. If only that had been the end of their conversation. But I'm the lucky one out of the two of us, Bilbo had said. Tariel had smiled a happy little ale-filled smile. And how so, Master Hobbit? I am almost certainly going to die before Thorin. And Tariel's smile had frozen. And Bilbo, in that way you do sometimes when a bucket full of cold water splashes over you, had sobered up a little. Not enough to apologize, just enough to be horror-stricken. I suppose you're right, Tariel had said simply, and they'd never discussed it again. In the library at Bag End, in the silence, Bilbo said, Go back to Erebor, Tariel. I cannot, Tariel replied, any more than you can. And then she smiled again. But we can both go to the lunch table for tea. Dwalin joined them at tea just as they were tidying up. Are you fighting keen, elf? 
he asked Tariel. Far more than you, dwarf, Tariel replied. Or have you forgotten our last wrestling match? I remember you cheating, Dwalin said. Finally, it made me right proud seeing you fight dirty like that. Warriors are strange simple folk, aren't they? Primalis said to Bilbo. The warriors ignored them. The little ones tell me there's rumors of a bear on the outskirts of Hobbiton, Dwalin told Tariel. This far into winter? she asked. What I thought. Might be nothing. Might be more. Dwalin nodded at Bilbo, who was now paying very keen attention. This one tells me the Shires had problems with winter predators in the past. It's not bears we've had problems with, Primula said, the beginnings of worry in her voice. Was she even old enough to have lived through the fell winter? It didn't matter. She grew up in the Shire, and that meant she'd have learned the stories as well as if she'd lived them herself. Can wolves look like bears? I hope not, said Bilbo. Someone might have awoken it from hibernation, Tariel said. We should help it return to sleep. Dwalin patted the axe strapped to his hip. My thoughts exactly. And it wasn't until after they left that Bilbo thought, Oh, a bear. Put aside another bowl of that stew, Bilbo said to Primula. A bowl with quite a lot of meat. When Bilbo had lived at Bag End before he left, he hosted, on average, about one visitor a month. He preferred calling on others, as it was always easier to leave someone else's home than it was to get someone to leave yours. So it was a testament, although perhaps comparatively the smallest one, to how much his life had changed since that fateful unexpected party, that when Tariel and Dwalin came back a few hours later and told Bilbo that Bayorn was in the front yard, Bilbo just said, Tell him to come in, if he can fit through the door. We have some dinner ready for him. Bilbo really was getting quite used to guests these days. Just as long as they were anyone besides the person he wanted. <laughs> <laughs>